Hey, everybody. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor and patient advocate. And yes, I'm a research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast, where I interview people in life sciences that I call brilliant but not famous. <laughs> well, some of them might be famous, uh, but all of them are well-known in their field and well-respected amongst their peers and the communities that they serve. And But they might not be known to my next-door neighbor if I mention the name. But I'm excited today, uh, and I'm super, super honored, actually, to have on my program uh, Patrick Lilly, uh, who's a CEO of Liquid Biosciences. And Patrick has spent uh, the past 25 years driving growth innovation in software, healthcare, big data, and wireless. He's also the inventor of over 75 patents and trade secrets in bioinformatics, diagnostic biomarkers, signal processing, artificial intelligence, and specialized algorithms. So welcome to the program, Patrick. How are you today? Thanks, Dave. I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Happy Friday. Yeah, you too. So, well, the first uh, first place I'm going to start is to tell everybody who, people who know me know that uh, big data and algorithms are way outside my wheelhouse. Okay, so let's just start, let's just put that on the table. But but that's actually why um, I, I was psyched to have Patrick on my show today. So let's start with your background. Uh, you know, like me, you're not a scientist, but you are. Well, you might be a software scientist or data scientist, but but you are leading a, an interesting life science organization that is accelerating prediction and precision medicine. And I love precision medicine. So. Patrick, if you could start by telling me about your professional background, that would be awesome. Yeah, sure. And, and it, it's funny you made the comment about, you know, not being a guy with a background in algorithms and so forth. But I think people uh, have an intuitive understanding that sort of algorithms and rules underlie the universe and nature and human behavior because, you know, we all live in civilizations. We have rule of law. We treat each other in reasonably consistent ways. Uh, and, and and also the, the fact of the matter is we understand biology is somewhat orderly, right? That's why they call diseases disorder. So there is an intuitive understanding. I think the question is how you get to the, the deeper nature of it. And, you know, my background initially, I was a computer science major for a couple of years. And uh, it, it was clear to me that I was a little bit more on the extroverted spectrum. So I ended up shifting into economics, but I loved the foundation of computer science. And the economics was interesting because, again, it was sort of what are the underlying rules that govern people's behavior or, or at least describe people's behavior, as imperfect as they were. Otherwise, all economists would be retired on an island, right? But, but um, that gave me the, the notion that I really wanted to understand uh, behavior, biology, the universe at large, and so forth. And, and I ended up um, moving into quantitative finance. And then I took a variety of roles in, in bigger companies. I was uh, in you know sales, operations, marketing, and so forth. And my last big corporate gig, I was head of strategy for Toshiba in the U.S., which is about a four and a half billion dollar organization. This was in the mid '90s, and then this new thing called the internet emerged, and I realized I wanted to sort of get out of the hardware computing side and get into building software that did things that were really meaningful. And and it was a wonderful time because nobody knew where the internet was going to go. We just knew it was going to change everything. And I, I did some consulting for several years to startups in Silicon Valley and Boston and, and overseas. And in 2000, I started a software company that this is going to sound very, you know, trivial today. But these these phones at the time, they were there were no smartphones and you couldn't update the software over the air. And uh, so that meant the, the phone couldn't adapt itself in customers hands. You couldn't get new features. You couldn't fix bugs and so forth. 
And uh, we had a specialized algorithm that would do that very efficiently. We were the first to be able to do it. And in that process, we happened to have an optimization that was required. That's what people in algorithms will call an intractable computing problem. Um, and so it, in other words, it would take about 10 to the 28th years to solve it if you tried to go through all the possible solutions, worse, worse than a chess game, you know? And so uh, what we did was we applied what's called a genetic algorithm and we literally evolved software solutions to the problem in a virtual ecosystem inside the servers. And it solved the problem reliably in about five minutes on a single server. And uh, it gave us big improvements in performance in that particular endeavor. So it, I had known about genetic algorithms for a long time, but it gave me a real insight into how their practical use. And that led to a whole series of things that I've done in big data and wireless and messaging security um, around evolving algorithms to solve specific large scale problems. And about 10 years ago, my co-founder and I thought, well, you know, if, if we think back to the way science works, not just biology, but physics and forms of engineering, you know, you have a set of observations about the real world. And if you go all the way back to Newton and Galileo and, and even Aristotle, they observed the world. And what they wanted to do is find sort of the rules of the underlying system, the universe, physics, whatever it was, that produced the outcomes. And, and they did it partly for just the intellectual understanding of the world and the universe around us, but they also did it for practical reasons so that you could, through after the enlightenment happened, you could begin to develop technology to improve all of human life, you know, reduce the amount of, of labor that people had to, uh, the hours that they had to work in a day, get people up from subsistence levels. And that has all led to, to this technology. And so our thought was, well, if we look at healthcare, biology and behavior is so complicated and, and you know a lot of very br brilliant people have done a great job of advancing the state of medicine and biology at the same time there was a lot that wasn't yet understood so our thought was well there's a lot more data being generated right now why don't we try to apply evolutionary computing in a broader way than we have in the past to try to look at data and actually build models of diseases and people and which treatments work and which don't work for which people and to diagnose diseases earlier. And so we developed this engine uh, based again on what we call mathematical evolution. And its job is to look at a set of patient data like we think of the foundation and flat iron data sets in let's say stage four lung cancer. And the circumstances were the diagnosis of the patient, their medical and clinical history, the genomics of the tumor, the genomics of the patient, and then what medications were given to them to deal with the cancer. And the outcomes were how long did they survive? Did they survive at all? What kinds of side effects did they have? And so we simply apply our software engine to that to create a model of stage four aggressive lung cancer. So that when you get a new patient in, you can say, okay, for this patient, what are the treatments or treatment combinations given his tumor, his history, his genomics that are most likely to you know, make him survive as long as possible or even cure the cancer. Uh, and it's a very thorny, nonlinear, complex problem with a lot of interactions. And so it's pretty well intractable to the forms of AI that people are using today. It's intractable to traditional statistics that want to draw straight lines through the world. And the world is, as we all know, is made of a bunch of curves. The earth is round after all, not flat, right? And, and so we built that system to do that. And, and since that time, 10 years ago, uh, we've now completed over 165 major analytic 
projects in healthcare across 44 different diseases, It'll be 45 as of the end of this week. Uh, and um, we've done that with no reproducibility failures, no failures at all in, in predictions once the algorithms got to the real world. And uh, the majority of the top 10 pharma companies are our clients. Um, Mayo has been a, a repeat client. Uh, we've worked for a number of the top universities in the world. And then with the gentleman that introduced us, Marty Kaiser uh, at IV Bioholdings, we have begun to spin out a series of diagnostic companies to greatly accelerate the development of tests that can detect diseases early so people can be treated early. And I think your story is a good one. You were fortunate in, in that your, uh, your lung cancer was detected at a time when you could actually do something about it and uh, the combination of the treatments and I think probably your personal mindset and activities has, has really helped you with it. Um, that's what we're trying to do is make more people like your story and less people like the stories of people that just don't make it because the treatments come too late and the discovery comes too late. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And um, we talk a lot, a lot of us advocates talk about, boy, if only we could get, we could, we could get diagnosed earlier, you know, the earlier because the because the the outcomes are so terrible for you know friends of mine who I've lost at late stage stage four lung cancer. So how do we how do we get an earlier diagnosis and how how is the work that you're doing uh, impact that? Yeah. So so the good news is that um, the U.S. government, principally through the NIH, has funded. I don't know how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of researchers uh, on grants to do work um, in developing uh, treatments and to do the research to understand what's going on in the biology of patients and their diseases. And they have made all that data publicly available on what's called the gene expression omnibus, which has you know, proteins measured in the blood of patients, RNA measured, it has their genome sequence in some cases, and a number of other types of data. And that's all publicly available data that can be used. So is, this is a great example of government funding something for public use. And so we take that data. And, and if you think about lung cancer, for example, you know, our first company with, with Marty was Liquid Lung, um, which is an intent to have a test to diagnose lung cancer as early as possible from a peripheral blood test uh, rather than a biopsy and do it pre-imaging and post-imaging. And so in that case, we had a number of data sets where you can think about there were hundreds of patients and for each patient, there were 57,000 different kinds of RNA measured in their blood. The question is, how do you use those RNA measurements to distinguish between patients that had the cancer and didn't have the cancer or had um, malignant tumors versus benign tumors? And so we fed that data into our software and it said, okay, here is a subset of those 57,000 RNA molecules. There's about 105 of them. Um, that can accurately detect lung cancer early and distinguish between the subtypes, adenocarcinoma, squamous cell, et cetera. Uh, and so we discovered those using our software. And then we took another data set and we validated those biomarkers again. So do they predict in this separate group of patients, which was created by a totally different group of researchers? Yes, they work. Did they do it in a second, a third, and a fourth? And we did that four times. And and that reliably produced uh, biomarkers that, that worked and we're now developing, we've commercialized that in a company uh, and we're now developing the actual test with partner labs uh, so that it can be used to die for early screening for high risk patients who had more exposure. For example, I know you weren't a smoker, but, um, but in those who, who have been smokers, they're high risk. So it can be used for early detection. 
then for people like you that through some sort of uh, process of symptoms end up at the doctor's office and you get some imaging done and you see something, post-imaging, you can use another version of our test to say, is it benign or malignant? And should you move on to the invasive needle biopsy? Um, because a lot of the needle biopsies, in fact, the majority are negative, right? And so we want to prevent some of those. They're costly, they're, they're uh, risky to the patient, there are complications. Um, but for those that, that um, are, in fact, going to have a positive biopsy, we need to make sure that they move forward into that process. And all of this is designed to lower the risk for the patient, but also lower the cost in the healthcare system because prevention is far less expensive than treatment and far less risky to the patient. Um, so the general process, like I said, is for us to get these data sets, do the discovery and repeatedly validate, and then put it into a company where we create the test itself and take it to market. That's so cool. And and so the name Liquid Biosciences, um, so how did the name come about? Well, it, it's interesting. So a lot of people think because of this emergence of the, of the phrase liquid biopsies, they exactly. think it had something to do with that, but it exactly. actually had its yeah. genesis much earlier. And this is a funny story that, you know, when I talk about the circumstances and outcomes of your observations of the world, when you create a model, a mathematical description of how the world works, that's what scientists do. I mean, Bertrand Russell, the mathematician said, a theory is nothing more than a mathematical description of your observations. And that, that's true. Um, so what's interesting is that statistics tends to sort of draw straight lines through clouds of points. It approximates the real world. It doesn't really model it. And AI in a lot of ways does that as well, especially as they're trying to figure out which biomarkers matter, which clinical factors matter. But they're not sort of molding the mathematics to the system and creating a model of the real world system. We are in fact doing that. Now, the reason that's important to our name is that you've heard the story probably about Aristotle, I'm sorry, Archimedes, and, and uh, he was asked to uh, check for a ruler, whether the whether his crown, the gold bar that he his jewelers created the crown from, whether they had shaved any off and taken it for him, himself. And so what he did was he said, okay, well, I can't measure the complex shape of the crown and figure out its volume and compare it to the volume of, the, of that gold bar. But he figured out, you've heard the phrase Eureka. Well, what happened was he got into a bath and he saw the water level rise and it hit him right at that moment that simply measuring the, the degree to which the volume rose would give him the complex volume displacement of his own body without having to measure all the curves of his own body. And it hit him that that's what he could do for the crown. And so a liquid conforms itself around a complex object. And that's the genesis of liquid bioscience because we conform the math around the real world system automatically. It really adapts to what's real, not, not to our ideas of what's real. <laughs> that's a great story. Of course, does it matter that the, that people don't know that that's the the, the history behind liquid biosciences? Or I... No, it, and you know this is this is like uh, art and and communication in a sense. What we care about is is the message that people take from it, and that it resonates with them. And it's resonating without knowing that, right? Even when I tell the story, if they want to think of liquid biopsies, that's totally appropriate because that's much of what we do. I think it's just cool though, because I love uh, when I am introduced to new companies and I always wondered you know, where did that name come from, you know, and it's like, you know, it's not just a, you know, a, a series of letters, you know, but there's many times there is a story behind it. That's a really cool story. Right. Thanks, for, thanks for sharing that with me. Um, I'd like to go back to the, you know, to the foundation of medicine. Um, 
uh, example you were talking about. And I, I am very interested in the work that they're doing. Again, it's, it's very complex to me, but you know, this dike, this uh, companion diagnostics and genomic testing and all that stuff is so cool. So, and I'm going to have um, them on my show, actually, their chief science officer is going to be on my show soon. So I'm Beautiful. excited about that. But so how does, how does your, can you talk about the partnership between you or the, or the relationship between you and, and foundation medicine and kind of, or, or as an example of how right, you work yeah. with, with pharma or with industry? Yeah, so so the particular example I gave in in predicting survival in aggressive stage four lung cancer was done for a major pharma client uh, based in in Europe. They have a U.S. organization as well, and they said, "Look, we have access to the foundation and Flatiron data. These these two entities have done a beautiful job gathering data on cancer patients. Foundation also has a number of genomic tests of the tumor and, and of the patient. And the good news is that Foundation and Flatiron actually had a lot of the same patients." And so they could link the data. And so our client said, well, here's the question we'd like to explore, which is, you know, we, we have a particular drug in the immunotherapy space. We'd like to understand drugs in that category because ours is so new. How do they perform? What are they best paired with? Which types of chemo for which patients and, and so forth? And they said uh, uh, Flatiron and Foundation have excellent, excellent data. So we want to give you access to that data. We did a separate agreement with those two entities to get it. Uh, and then uh, we integrated it all and we began to do this analysis where we said, here's everything we know about the patient at the time of diagnosis of the lung cancer, their age, their gender, their genomics, the tumor, their medical history, whether they smoked or not for how many years. And then here's a series of treatments that they were given over time. And the outcome is, did they survive for one, two, three, four, five years, or of course, much longer? And can you predict those survival times based on those inputs? And the answer was yes, we could do it very reliably. And, and we held back a third of the patients uh, completely blinded and out of sample to prove the algorithm to them, to show them that it could in fact do that. Um, I think even more important though than the algorithms was the interesting thing that from the, the wonderful data that these two companies had provided, um, we were able to provide insights that are, you don't think of them as algorithms. For example, in a, certain, in a certain class of patients with stage four lung cancer on immunotherapies, it turns out um, that it is better to go back to first generation platinum chemotherapy as an adjunct treatment or, or preliminary treatment than to the second generation platinum chemotherapy. And th the new generation is much more tolerable to the patients. It has less side effects. On the other hand, it was very clear to us that came out of the mathematics that there's a very simple rule. If it's this class of immunotherapy and you go back to state or, or to generation one platinum chemotherapy, you double the patient's survival time. Well, that's a real, and I, when I say double, the average or the median survival time was around 12 months and it went to 25 um, for this particular subgroup of people, which is a considerable proportion of, of lung cancer patients. So that's the kind of insight that setting aside all the complicated math, it's a simple rule. When you see this, do this, and this is the kind of result you can get. And I think that's, that's what gets me so excited about this kind of work is seeing those kinds of results that are so practical and they immediately just, can help. Yeah, I was just gonna say as a practical matter, how, how is that, is that literally being shown at, in, in, in patients going under, undergoing treatment? That so, example? Uh, I can't comment on what the client is doing with it uh, because of the strict confidentiality agreements, sure. but, yeah. but, but just let's say that the message was well-received. Um, and um, 
when you think about how they might use that, um, if I were in their shoes, what I would do, of course, is in my marketing materials for my immunotherapy, I would educate the physicians on exactly that and say, look, if you see these circumstances, do this. And I would, of course, also carry it to the payers and to the regulatory agencies so that they properly support it. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's, that's the, the, as you said, taking away the complexity of it and, and trying to think of the impact uh, on patients, because that's what all of us patient advocates want. We want to know, like, you know, how, how can you save our lives? Not me in particular, but uh, many of my friends. So I, I, it, I'm really interested in, in, in learning more about this. And actually, and when I'm talking with Foundation Medicine, that'll be, that'd be kind of cool too. So um, what do you think precision or personalized medicine is going to look like five years from now? Well, it's interesting um, because adoption varies quite a bit across segments of the industry. Um, I think um, in the next five years, one of the great things that will be happening is we'll begin to see a shift, partly because of what happened with COVID, away from only looking at the genomics of the patient, which is just the blueprint for how the human being is built. It doesn't say anything about how the human being is doing today. Think of it like a blueprint for a Formula One car. You can say, yeah, it's got 800 horsepower and it's going to be fast. And But how's it doing on the track right now? Where's the real-time telemetry? Genomics is like that. It doesn't tell you the real-time telemetry of the human being, what's really going on right now. But if you look at proteins in the blood and the tissue, if you look at RNA in the blood and tissue, those can tell you what's going on now. And if you notice that the, the vaccines and a lot of the research into COVID-19, RNA has started to you know, be a, an acronym that the public is becoming aware of. And I think what it's showing the, the medical establishment and the research establishment is that you cannot just focus on the blueprint for the human being. We are not deterministic machines. There's a ton of environmental influences. In fact, for, for something like 95% of diseases, the genomic influence is less than a quarter of the story. Now, if that's the case, you have to begin to measure and use RNA and proteins. And I think that will be one of the bigger shifts over the next five years. And what I can tell you is of the 165 projects we've done in the last decade, uh, almost 80 of them have been RNA, proteins, lipidomics, and and things that are the real-time telemetry alongside the traditional imaging and clinical variables. So I think that's going to be the largest change. I think one other thing that's going to be important is, you know, I I sit on a task force, uh, which is uh, partly um, sponsored by the the FDA, as well as a variety of other public and private institutions. Um, It's called the Blockchain and Artificial Intelligence Task Force at MD Epinet. And I'm the co-chair of the AI subcommittee there. And what I'm seeing is there's a lot of discussion around how do we really get AI into practice? Because there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of press. And there's a lot of mystery around the black boxes, but there there aren't a lot of sort of regulatory pathways and processes to determine the validity of these. The FDA, I think, is doing a really good job exploring that. They've had people exploring it from a variety of disciplines for a number of years. And I have to tell you, the quality of the people there is extremely high and the people they've brought to the task force the same. So I think that will be the second thing is it will begin to sort of standardize and develop frameworks for for how do we know that these quantitative models produced by our method or any others are actually valid? They're gonna hold up on new patients. We can trust them. The models are transparent. They explain what they do. They say why they're not a rat's nest or a black box. 
Um, that's, I, I think, uh, the second big change that I would see. Uh, I, in, in that particular area, I've been fascinated for many years in, in AI and how uh, I, years ago, I worked at a company that uh, we were acquired by a company that was an EMR company, and they were trying mm. to do software to, to to figure out ways that I think kind of led to things like IBM Watson. That the, this was the, the hype, right? It's going to a uh, physician and oncologist can be looking at these charts and these things are going to magically tell them exactly what to do with a patient. And of course, you know, I think, you know, that hasn't proven to be you know quite the case, but I'm, but I am interested in, in the, in the potential for it, because I think of, of an oncologist trying to keep up with all of the rapid pace of change of, of new breakthroughs and, and new learnings that we have, right? And particularly in lung cancer, things have changed so much. You mentioned my story. My story was 20 years ago. So think about what's changed in the, in the past 20 years. Right. So, so I, I wonder how, you know, when will that actually be the case or, or you know, with, with AI, when, when it really will have a true impact on people on the front lines who are making decisions, right? And whether it's in a right. community setting or an academic setting, are patients going to get access to the, to the same level of treatment? Yeah, I think there's two steps for it to happen. One, the first, the first thing that has to happen is that you know AI or machine learning or statistics or our, our method, which is sort of outside those, um, the models have to be explainable. They have to be understandable. You have to be able to say why they are predicting the things they do or diagnosing the patients that they do. Um, what's interesting though is when we think about experts in any field, including physicians and researchers, we don't. We don't say to a PhD researcher who came up with a brilliant new treatment for cancer, we don't say, well, first we need to dissect your brain and we need to see how all your neurons are working. Otherwise we can't trust the idea, right? <laughs> and, and so what we do instead is we trust the, the person's track record, right? And so if, if she has produced a series of innovations they have tested well across patients in clinical trials scenarios and so forth, then we can trust it. We'll eventually get there, but we're in this, this difficult period for AI where people are not yet thinking about it as an equivalent to, to human beings or mechanisms that we have to trust. And so uh, there isn't a way exactly for them to, to do that. Yeah, that's really great. That, that really makes sense to me. Thanks for, thanks for kind of you know, explaining that. So um, I'd like to kind of take a shift here and, and Learn a little bit more about you, uh, Patrick. And I know uh, you live in California. Where do you live in California? I live in Orange County, which is in SoCal between San Diego and LA counties. Okay. Are you from? Are you? Is that where you're from? Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm actually fourth generation Orange County, and you know my kids are fifth. My grandkids are sixth generation Orange County. So, yeah, we've been here a while. Well, that, things have changed in Orange County in the in the several decades that you've been there. Right. A huge amount. When I was growing up in Huntington Beach and Fountain Valley area, um, you know, when we drove to South County, it was, uh, you know, there was a wild animal park down here. There were strawberry fields everywhere. We didn't have the huge shopping centers. Um, the university at UC Irvine was was built in 1965. And in the 70s, it was comparatively small, it was sort of a ring of buildings. Uh, now with corporate sponsors and, and its success in research and so forth, it's a massive, massive campus and they have their own medical center. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. Um, so there's been, yeah, a, a huge amount of development. It's interesting too, because, you know, you talk about Orange County, there's a city called Orange in the center of the county. 
And <laughs> my grandfather ran the Orange City News. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's where if you see if you've seen Forrest Gump and he's sitting on the bench, that's actually in the center of the little roundabout in the city of Orange. Um, and there are pictures of the town in the Starbucks that's there, which was my granddad's old newspaper shop. And you should see how different it was then. I mean, there were a lot of the roads were dirt and, you know, just roads and freeways didn't exist. It was amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. So, and I, I'm, because I live in Boston, although I'm from Minnesota, I, I, uh, I, I live in, in Boston, but we get so, we get a little bit uh, in a bubble here, I think sometimes, many of us in life sciences in Massachusetts. Now I'm very proud of the life sciences of Massachusetts, but I know, uh, through an event that I had last year called the Biotech Game, I, I got to know some folks in California, and you know, kind of re- it was a good reminder that we should we should we should remind remind ourselves that there's a ton of good stuff happening all over the world, Absolutely. but in, particularly in Southern California, from from where you are down to San Diego, uh, and, and not to mention San Francisco. But there's so much happening um, in California. How do you see the? Do, do you see any difference in the way? Uh, things things are looked at or things get done between California and, and Massachusetts or East Coast, West Coast? Yeah, I, I, so I've, I've had the good fortune, by the way, to have worked all over the world and, and have teams in places like Serbia and China and Sweden and Finland and you, you name it all, all over the place. And um, I, I would say this, if you, if you think about the big centers in sort of technology and biotechnology, biotechnology, San Diego, Boston, there's some up in San Francisco as well, but San Francisco is more known for internet and, and software technology. Um, the Boston area is obviously got a tremendous set of universities, highly intellectual, great talent pool. Um, people tend to be quite open-minded about crossing disciplines in Boston, I found. Um, you see that a lot less in Silicon Valley. People will move from business to business in the Valley, but they're they're much more you know, focused in a particular discipline or specialization. Southern California is a bit more like Boston in that we had during the 60s and 70s, a lot of the defense contractors here. Uh, we had the design centers for a number of auto manufacturers. Uh, we had a quite diverse sets of industry. And then when the defense industry sort of fell apart with the oil shocks in the 70s and then later in the 80s and 90s, um, a lot of those engineers that worked there went out and started hardware and software companies and communication companies. And, and uh, you know, we had Broadcom, for example, which is a, a big semiconductor player here in communications was one of those. But there was this recognition of a diverse economic landscape that I think is far more diverse than you see in places like Silicon Valley uh, and San Diego. It's much more reflective of Boston. Um, I think just culturally, you know, Orange County is a bit more casual than than Boston. Uh, people dress better in Boston too, you know. But but uh, uh, but they have that similarity of the cross disciplinary approaches and and the diversity of perspectives that I think is very powerful. And one of the reasons I love the Boston area so much. Yeah, me too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. Uh, I asked all my guests this question as I get towards the end of our of our conversation. And I'd like to, to tell me something you're passionate about or something that people may not know about you. Well, I think the, the first thing is it's, it's obvious that, you know, I go to bed every night thinking about, I'm aware of the statistics of the number of people who are suffering and dying because of disease. And I think that, you know, every day, even Charles Darwin said this, you know, if, if somebody wastes an hour, they don't understand the value of life. 
right? And that's absolutely true. Um, so, so that's the, the first thing that, that, that I would say is that I'm passionate about helping the patients as, as much as possible. Uh, I think maybe what people might not know is that um, when I talk about things like diversity of specializations and, and so forth, um, we're really fortunate, Dave, that a lot of our technology, and we have 130 trade secrets and patents around the core technology, they are based on the, the work of absolute giants, you know, Alan Turing, Claude Shannon in information theory, even Einstein's Brownian in motion paper, which goes all the way back to a botanist named Brown in 1850 who saw pollen moving in a microscope and wondered why it was jiggling and he thought it was alive and it wasn't. All of the sort of mathematics and fundamental concepts in physics and biology and mathematics and finance, they all come together and even economics. Uh, believe it or not, knowing when to stop evolution in a, in a virtual process relates to income inequality equations in economics. And so we are fortunate to have drawn upon all these ideas. So my real passion is for not making any assumptions that a particular area of music or art or physics or finance doesn't have a contribution to biology in our core work. Rather, I would say, try to review all of those things and get concepts and try to adopt them because these people before us, Einstein and Newton and Shannon and all these folks, their genius was staggering and they produced work. People don't know that Alan Turing, besides his work on decoding the German Enigma machine, he actually did work not only in computer science that was foundational to everything we do, but he did work in biology. And Claude Shannon, who invented information theory, you know, for AT&T and Bell Labs and, and so forth, he actually did work in the algebra of genomics and people don't realize this. So there, a lot of these geniuses were cross-disciplinary and they drew upon the power of nature. And that's a, a real passion of mine is saying, look, nature itself, the system of evolution in the real world, natural selection and how things change is actually a very powerful computer. That's why we borrow from those concepts. And so that passion for a cross-disciplinary wide perspective on things is what really drives me. Plus, it's a lot of fun because I get to learn from amazing experts in such a variety of fields. It's just so much fun. That's awesome. I, I can I can I sense your passion. I love it. Uh, I'm a very passionate person myself, too. So and the thing that, that people don't know about me, actually, I'll share it with you. I don't know if I've ever shared it on my show yet, but um, I have a lot of passions, too. But my thing that people would never know about me is I love birding. I'm a birder. You never know that, right? So that's, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it's kind of silly, but um, my kids found a, a bird book I have and they, some they found and they, they, I used to keep track of birds that I would see in the backyard feeder and I would mark and write the dates down. And, you know, I'm kind of a bird nerd in that way. So I just want, I, thought, I don't know why I share that, but what the heck. <laughs> it's a beautiful area because I mean, first of all, go back to Darwin and the finches on the Galapagos. Right. But but second, look at all the variety of songs across species and even within a species of totally. birds. And, and there's the melody and the beauty of it. There's the communication aspect. There's the signaling aspects of it to competitors. It, it's a beautiful, <laughs> rich, deep area. It's so funny. That's so true. Wow. You know, we could talk all day, I'm sure, Patrick. Uh, but I, I just want to really thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show and and keep up the good work. You're doing such amazing things. And I, I oftentimes try to, to bring it back to lung cancer because that truly is my passion. I'm a research evangelist, but I am a lung cancer survivor. So that means a lot to me. And uh, I will make sure that my 
my my crew, my community, you know, will listen to this program and have optimism from the work that you're doing uh, at, at Liquid Biosciences. So, so Patrick, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Dave. I love your work. Keep going. It's, awesome. It's, it, I've got it bookmarked. Awesome. Thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye.